welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, and welcome to Weird Studies. Uh, Today we have a special episode for you. Um, Recently, Phil and his wife Helen were on a road trip in eastern Canada, and they stopped by Ottawa for a visit. So that was great. Our families got to hang out. We barbecued. We drank some beer. And um, Phil and I took the opportunity to record our first in-person Weird Studies episode with both of us sitting in the same room. The sound quality isn't what we're used to on the show. That's because we were using a single mic for both of us. However, we hope that the spontaneity of the chat um, makes up for that. And we really let the dialogue find its own shape. And um, we hope you enjoy the results. about the fact that we're sitting live i think if that's we should probably start how are we that. doing how are we doing with that is it working for you being live being yeah, sitting together? actually talking as like two human beings and not a i think that people will notice a, a difference yeah i think the, so the too vibe because we're actually just having a conversation looking at each other and yeah. it's very different i mean we did last time we recorded we did decide to use the usually up until episode 22 we were purely using audio. We were not using the cameras at all on our computers. Mm-hmm. We weren't seeing each other. Then we start. We tried one once just to see how that would affect the vibe. I didn't notice a big difference, but I think now, obviously, the fact that we're sitting together in a room, the sound's going to be, you know, it's going to sound different. It's right. going to feel different because we're interrupting each other more because we're having a real conversation. Yeah. Uh, so that in itself is interesting. I mean, we met in person the mm-hmm. first time, but we quickly started to develop correspondence over the internet using email. But it was still a fairly traditional correspondence. Sending letters. Yeah, we were sending forth. letters back and forth, and they were long, and they, we could have done it by mail. It would have taken mm-hmm. longer, but, but sometimes we'd, it'd be a week between responses. Yeah. It felt like a, a fairly traditional type of correspondence. Like an epistolary kind of communication. Not different in kind from... You see the collected letters of George Sand or something like that. Right, just exactly. Sort of, you know. Yeah, that style or Lovecraft's uh, yeah. famous course. Just a different, just, just a different uh, means of, to the same end. Yeah. But I, I, I am a Luddite. I, I think that for every problem to a given technology solves, more problems are created. Sure. So therefore, I have a completely, um, uh, I, I'm completely indifferent to technological progress. In fact, I think it can... It can probably, in the long run, only cause problems, mm. at least at the ecological level, if not at the social level as well. And we we're seeing now, like, who would have thought that Facebook would turn into the <laughs> this thing <laughs> into that's the eating America? Yeah, this yeah. thing that's destroying a, an entire country. So yeah, so and, and you know what? I could go back and say, I "Told you so," right? I can mm-hmm. remember things I wrote back then. That, but um, 
you know, maybe it could have gone the other way as well. But when we like our relationship and this podcast, I, I love podcasting. I think that there's something that, you know, there, you can find these new affordances within a technological medium that are actually really great. But again, the medium being the message, there's definitely a, an aesthetic difference between talking over Skype and actually being in the same room. Yeah, it's true. You know, science gives us, among other things, some wonderful like metaphors and like ways of understanding things on a poetic level. Right. And so the idea of molecules is a wonderful poetic idea. And the idea of like, oh, what is, what is a cigarette? It's a delivery device for this molecule called nicotine. You know, a beer, like we're drinking a, each drinking a Corona right now. Like that's a, a delivery device for alcohol. And of course, you know, it has other properties too that make it taste good or make it taste different from others, comparable kinds of beer, whatever. But from a pharmacological point of view, what it is is, you know, it's a certain quantity of this molecule, alcohol. The idea of a molecule that has invariant or at least predictable qualities across many different instances or, or uses, like you need to, that needs to be at least somewhat true in order for people to use drugs properly at all. For instance, you know, if you're taking like a, oh shit, I don't know, painkillers or something. Right. I'm only thinking of painkillers because I like shattered my leg a couple of years ago and you become acutely aware of how important it is for there to be a certain predictability in the effects of drugs. Oh yeah. You know, under those circumstances. Right. Um, so the point is like, we get used to the idea that the molecule and its effects are separable from like, for example, alcohol is separable from the beer. Right. And likewise, the idea of like, oh, the, what happens when we talk on the phone, for example, mm -hmm. is no different in kind from what happens when we talk one-on-one. -on -one. Right. There's no magical juju that like, I can't, I don't know, I can't read your mind. Like, not, you're, you know, you're, you're still responding to my words. And you can say, well, there's also body language. You can see me moving. Like right now I'm gesturing with my hands. You know, or like when I'm trying to formulate a thought, my eyes will go off and I'll sort of focus in the middle distance. And that is a kind of body language that might convey something and perhaps you'll adjust to it. So on and so forth, right? But the idea that there is some kind of, you know, the way people, the way musicians, for example, talk about like there being a kind of an energy, like mm -hmm. some performances, for instance, like you can play beautifully one night and the audience is kind of into it, but you know, the next night, you know, you could hear a pin drop and it's like you have the audience in the palm mm -hmm. of your hand. What's different? Well, the easy thing to say would be, well, just on the, on the second night, you were more dialed in, you played better, so people paid more attention, blah, blah, blah. But every performing musician knows that there's something else. Oh, yeah. This quality of liveness, of being there that is not reducible to, like, how many of the notes you play correctly or who or how content the audiences or whether they enjoyed their dinner beforehand or these various kind of like intangibles that nevertheless at least in principle you could measure and you could factor into some kind of vast equation right 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 and just as you know that's a that's an idea that 
where we can like, well, I can calculate how drunk you're going to get off of five beer because of, you know, this beer is 5% alcohol by volume, five times 12 ounces, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, exactly. And you weigh however much you weigh. What I'm trying to say is, though, I think that you and me being in the same room and talking, you know, even if we were talking on Skype and we could see each other's body language and we could still have the same exact kind of transfer of information between us, the being in the same room confers some kind of special something. It allows for a kind of exchange of energy in the same way that, and I'm using the word energy not in any literal or physical sense, like a, like a measurable energy, like ohms or some shit, you know? Yeah. But it's the same kind of thing as like the difference between listening to a performance on a recording and, you know, going to a performance live and having that moment where like, you know, the musician just has the audience in the palm and that special it's something like maybe telepathy or it's like it's something that goes beyond all of the calculable at least theoretically calculable factors of, yeah you, do you see you see what i'm saying absolutely it's what deleuze calls the event right mm-hmm. the event is always always virtual it's never something you can point it's never a molecule it's always the sum total of all these other all these molecules interacting together, but it emerges as the most important thing, as the as the event itself, and it's irreducible to the causal processes that bring it about, mm-hmm. and it is in itself what he calls a quasi cause because it can make more things happen, mm-hmm. even though it has no actual existence. It's always just virtual, but it, it remains to be seen whether. The fact that we're together in the room makes for a better podcast episode. I don't think that's it'll, necessarily the case. It'll be interesting to hear. It's different hear for the playbacks. us. Yeah. And it, that made me think of something I've thought about. The, I, I've read a few articles over the years of people saying the amount of information the average human takes in today is like basically now in one day, the average person takes in more information than most people in the year 1000 took in their whole lives. Uh, you've heard that type of thing before? Yeah. 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 And just to demonstrate the, the patent absurdity of that type of thinking, uh, what you're pointing at here, the fact that we're sitting together, there's all, at the purely unconscious level, for example, you're, you're emitting pheromones right now. Mm-hmm. If you want to just keep, we'll keep it at the molecular level. You're emitting <laughs> pheromones that are affecting me. Mm-hmm. I, can't sm- I can't smell you right now. You'll probably be happy to know. <laughs> um, but, but you are, if, you know, there's yeah. all this stuff going on. Uh, that is edited out of the Skype reality, right. that, that type of virtual platform or forum. And the average person in the year 1000 lived in this world all the time. And today we, do, we go out of our way to try to eliminate this world. And yes. It goes beyond just screen time. It goes to like, you know, antiperspirants and mm-hmm. soap. And we do all kinds of things to, to make our bodies invisible mm-hmm. uh, or to make them the least present possible to make yes. them absences um, and so that we can inter- interact as pure minds that seems to yes. be the ideal of an information age yeah well or pure minds and pure content pure content yeah that's what I meant that's what I mean by that that's a better word yeah pure content and the pure uh, what are you saying what do you want you know that type yeah. of that pure inten- intentionality uh, mm-hmm. of a truly an, a, an information age so However, well, it's I... something that's fungible for one thing, because like an event in this Deleuzian sense is a singularity. Each event right. is just what it is. Yeah. 
well, how can that become an object of exchange? It can't. Yeah. It always escapes. That's the idea. There's an idea of the line of flight. There's always something escaping. Mm-hmm. And that's what cannot be commodified. Right. And that's what that... The revolution will not be televised. Mm-hmm. That's that what, what that that's dude about. is talking about. Yeah, that's right. You know? And... Right. Um, but on a, pure, on a more concrete level, I just wanted to make this point and then we can move on to yeah. that. Is that uh, the average person in the year 1000, let's say... So we're talking about a medieval, medieval peasants would be able to see... You know, we, the, old, the old thing about Inuit have a hundred words for snow or whatever. Or whatever, yeah. You know, that gets to something. Like what, what they mean by that is that if you want to describe this world as information, there's an incredibly, infinitely richer amount of information in, say, a field, a farmer's field or a meadow, or a village, than there is in any virtual representation on a computer of any yeah. of those things. Yeah. So, or a description in language. In a way, we live in an information-poor society, in the sense that we are less informed, we are less formed by our environment than we've, any, we've ever been. That's true in one sense, completely false in another, in the sense that we're completely formed by our environment to the extent that our media, the media that we're ensconced in, form us completely. But the media actually protect us or separate us from a more analog, striated, complex, unknowable environment of a a real physical reality that we try to, like, ignore or, or banish from our existence. Yeah, Lionel Snow, who I think... Probably the next episode we drop is going to be our interview with with Lionel Snow. Um, yeah, he says somewhere in one of his publications he ta- he says, "Well, everyone says that we live saying something quite similar to what you're saying. Everybody says we live in an information overload." He's like, "But actually, we kind of are living in a, a in a desert because you know, think about somebody who is working at a desk all day." You know, she's got her big monitor and like something is always open in front of her, like on the on the virtual desktop, the computer desktop. And it's like emails that you're responding to and you know, maybe when the boss isn't looking you look at cat videos on YouTube or whatever. But you could calculate the bits of information coming in at that person. Right. You know, it's the number of bits of things that are being transmitted by that screen. And that is pretty much the sum total of what is coming in in that person's experience. But when she shuts the computer off and gets up to go home, say walks home 20 minutes, think of all the terabytes per second of stuff coming in just from feeling like the gentle breeze on prickling the hair on your arm and... You know, the smells of like hot asphalt and exhaust or whatever. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of a joke that Louis C.K. makes about like people who go to their kids' ballet recital or whatever. Yeah. And all of them have their phones out. Yeah. And he's like, we all are, look like we're in witness protection program with the bar across our yeah. eyes. <laughs> You yeah, know, basically any anything but the event. He's like, "Why are you looking at your phone? Your kid is right there." And I, yeah. I, he has a line which I think is really funny. He's like, "The resolution on your kid is amazing." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say the granularity of an analog reality is literally infinite. Yeah, uh, it has no bottom. Yeah, you can't get to the pixels. Um, it's actually infinitely granular, and. 
you can't calculate the amount of information that that the office worker you were describing experiences on her way home. Of course, we can choose to edit out, to ignore all that information. And that's what Bergson said, that the role of consciousness is to be a funnel, to squeeze out a valve, to squeeze out everything but what's considered essential. Mm-hmm. And if what, what's considered essential to you is a very impoverished notion of what should be essential, uh, well, then that's the, that's the type of information you're taking in. And you're only taking, informa- taking in information that passes that test. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many times I've caught myself looking up the weather instead of looking outside. I know, totally. You know? <laughs> uh, because how do I know it's going to be like that in three hours? Well, why don't you just start by going out, feeling like, okay. And maybe with time, you'll be able to read the weather you'll be able to sense or to intuit how the weather is going to turn in a day if you just pay attention to it instead of looking at your fucking phone. Well, here's an experience that one has all the time that you used to have all the time is going to a bookstore and picking up a book and like, how, do you feel lucky? Yeah. Oh, you're yeah. like, maybe this book could be a good friend of mine. I could be friends with this book. But you all you have to go on is like a blurb in the back. Maybe if you're hanging around a little bit you can read the first few pages maybe there's some like quotes from other authors saying that this is a great book and there's like the cool cover man i couldn't tell you how many books i've bought on the basis of just the cover yeah and just like how it feels in my hand and so on but now i feel like well that's not good enough i'm gonna spend my hard-earned money on a book i okay i'm gonna say right now i think that people who go to a bookstore see a book and they're like that looks awesome I'm going to order it from Amazon when I get home that's like a kind of refined form of shoplifting so <laughs> I think it's bullshit yeah because you, well you're shoplifting the curatorial exactly a- demand, aspect of the Precisely. Well, somebody put that book there for you to see it yeah so I yeah. think that's horseshit so, so don't do that but like but what I do find myself doing is I see a book and I'm like Hey, this I'm feeling lucky with this book in my hand. It's, I'm getting good vibes from this book, but I have to be sure. Yeah. <laughs> pull the phone out of my pocket yeah. and yeah. see like what does some what does some assholes on on Amazon think about right. it? Right, because that's important. Yeah, knowing what some randos think of this book. Oh man, I, the the death of the bookstore. People, I keep reading articles that oh no, that's actually it's making a comeback. Bookstores are doing great. I've read that a lot, and, mm. uh, and uh, for sure now we know that the ebook it was not what it was hyped up to be. No, it will not replace. And it never, books. it would never will. Yeah. No. However, I'll, I'll just thinking back on growing up in a house with books in it. Um, I grew up in a house with a few bookshelves, and there were lots of books. And how many books did I discover? Okay, one of the one of the writers who influenced me the most, and I, that I love dearly the most, is Henry Miller. Henry Miller was very never problematic. Made, never made much headway with him. Oh, yeah. Miller. I remember one day being like, I'm going to take a bath. This is something I used to love doing. It's like taking a bath with a book. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm going to take Tropic of Cancer with me into the bathtub. And I'm going to read it. And after a while, I'm just like, yeah, yeah let's just, yeah, I'm just like, I'm just going to finish washing up here. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I never picked it up again. But like, you really dug him, huh? I did. I, yeah, I love Henry Miller. Uh, and I was really happy to see Eric Davis interviewed a Scottish poet recently. I can't remember his name, but who wrote, who just wrote a book on Henry Miller. Nobody's writing about Henry Miller right now. He's because he's like the hashtag most, problematic. Yeah, yeah, he's very problematic. Even though I think he's, I'm, you know, I've talked to Leslie about this, and she was like, she's read Henry Miller, and she said he's probably the least 
misogynist writer I've ever read. Really? According to her. Interesting. Um, and yet, the language is, when he talks about sex and talks about lust and he talks about his own perversions and blah, 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 blah. Point being, um, I loved Henry Miller. How did I discover Henry Miller? I would never... Well, who knows? I, I mean, Henry Miller was the first truly literary artist that I discovered after, you know, Tolkien and William Gold, Golding mm. and the few that I, you know, knew yeah. as a kid. Uh, Henry Miller was the first forbidden book I took down from the shelf and started reading. I could, well, maybe I could have found it on my stepdad's hard drive as an e-book. I don't know, but there's something about the physicality of a book and... I used to, when I lived in Toronto, and you, you, we were talking about that earlier, there were many, 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 many bookstores in Toronto. It was a book city. It, had, it was a bit like Chicago. What I yeah. hear Chicago was uh, in that sense. And uh, these Midwestern cities. Yeah, a lot of these bookstores are gone. And not just like Book City and, uh, and uh, World's Biggest Bookstore and all those in Toronto, but also the little independent book sh- booksellers, yeah. you know, that were all over in little Victorian houses. And you go in, and mm-hmm. the place was like, oh, this used to be a living room, and now it's like... A bookstore. Yeah. And um, there was one science fiction bookstore called Baka, B-A-K-K-A on Queen Street. I don't know. That guy's probably still selling books somewhere. But it was fin- it was fantastic to walk into these little worlds. And yeah, I mean, now, uh, what do we do? I People recommend books to me. I look them up on the internet. And then I and you order, order them, them on Amazon. Yeah, I do. Um, I'm not going to pretend I'm like old school like that and just strictly picking up things from... No, yeah, of course not. But the, the point is, what's lost in that? And, and maybe I don't want to turn this into a trite, boring conversation about that shit. Well, we'll see. I wrote a piece about that called Reality's Analog, if yeah. you feel like reading it. Oh, that's it. a good piece. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's about Stranger Things. It is, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting, like, the resurgence of bookstores that I feel like books are, what books have become, actually, are figures of presence. Yes. A book is itself, like... The pure, the perfect, the great example. The exemplar, yeah. Yeah, of presence, like that special, the, the non-reducible, ah, shit, the non, I had a couple of beers here, non-reducibility of a book to its content. Right. That the it's not just the ones and zeros that amount to the words that could be indifferently on a page or on a computer screen or whatever. That a book is more than the sum of its parts, that a book has a presence that is emergent from all of that stuff. Yeah. And so when you see a bookstore that's still doing pretty well, this is a slightly McLuhan-ish thing to say, but I feel like they're not actually selling books. They're selling presents. Yeah, they're selling presents. Or another word for presents might be... I mean, presence is pretty much Heidegger's word for what Deleuze calls event. I think mm, that when... Okay. Uh, I think there's a something there. A book is an event. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. When yeah. I was a kid pulling books off my parents' bookshelf and oh, trying to figure magical. out... Remember you describing how you were uh, intrigued by uh, your dad's old copy of um, M.R. James. James's stories. And I remember when I was a kid, my grandfather had a little nook in his bedroom. He had a bedroom closet, like a walk-in closet. And then there was a little nook you could climb up and he had books in there, like tucked away. And that was the, those were the only books in my grandfather's house. They were tucked, hidden in the attic. <laughs> and one of them was Carrie, Stephen King's Carrie. Huh. And, and I remember looking, and it was like a, just an illustration of a woman, a drawing of a woman. on. There's a background of fire, I think. Yes. And being really intrigued by that book and scared to death just by looking at that book and wondering about what it contained. And I've been rereading um, 
Lovecraft recently, whom I will I will fight you to the death. He's a <laughs> fucking awesome writer. But um, he had and he was kind of a prophet in that sense that he sensed this quality of books as events or as books as presences. His literary, his mythos is... Well, like the Necronomicon. The Necronomicon. The fantasy of a book that uh, has agency in the world. Of course, it being Lovecraft, a completely malevolent agency. Right, right. the book does it on its own. Yeah, the Necronomicon, the Liber, the Bonus, there's a a bunch of books in his canon, in in his world, that if you find them, if you read them, you will be changed forever. And I think that... Um, That's something that keeps us hooked, doesn't it? The idea that we're going to find that book that will change us. Yeah, but in I, this, in haven't this you that, found some books that have changed you? Of course. You? Can you name me one book that changed you forever? The E. Motherfucking Ching. Right, right, of like, course. That is, it's funny because like, I love that fictional trope. Like, I think every big reader loves that fictional trope of the book that actually delivers wisdom. Like the idea of what if... Something, maybe not the Necronomicon, but something like that. A book that has power, a book that agency, a book where all the secrets are written. Yeah. You know, a book that is itself a magical object. Like, we're always drawn that idea. I have, I'm just going to be real. I think the I Ching is, certainly for me, and, and certainly for a lot of people, is that book. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, that was... That's definitely one of those books. But that book's meant to be that type of book. I want to know about a book that one wouldn't think. <laughs> okay, it was because cheating. I, was gonna, I could say the Bible. Because I read the Bible front to back when wow. I was 33. And I was about to have a child. And I, I, I don't know. I was going through this thing. And I, I actually read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I found it was one of those books, for sure. I mean, it's, uh, it's a, a book of power. A book of power. Not the book of power. I'm not one of those. Yeah, but, but a, a book of a power. A book of power. Oh, I'll, I'll buy that. Yeah. Um, so, but, but let's go with books that one wouldn't expect to turn out to be the Necronomicon. There must be some books like that. <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah. Great question. It depends on what, uh, I'm going to do that typical douchey academic, well, it depends on what you mean by power. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to sidle out of the, of an interesting question. I could tell you books that had, um, that felt magical to me and one weird one that's coming to my okay like old books that belong to my grandparents my grandparents like to travel and there were things like you know wonders of the world and there were like where there were photos of you know Angkor Wat if that's how you pronounce that Angkor Wat yeah or or the pyramids or jungle temples or whatever fucking love those books and I would just pour over them and imagine them and imagine them I love books with these pictures of these far off places that actually existed it was like you know, the universe giving me promissory notes. Right. Of course, yeah. I haven't seen any of that shit, but like... Yeah, no, but, but, but I mean, but that's like, the, that's, so, so, that's so old school. It's just like kids love to imagine stuff like that and finding books full of those pictures, wonders. You know, when you're, I mean, now we're all like, who listening to this has never seen a picture of the Sphinx? Right. Or the pyramids or whatever. That's banal, right? Mm-hmm. But being a kid and you're rooting through your parents' books in the basement and you find a book that's full of pictures of these things. And not all of them are buildings. I remember it like it was something that's sticking in my mind. It's like a huge boulder, like a 50-ton boulder that's just like balanced. It's perfectly balanced. There's a little fulcrum point. It's like on top of a cliff. I think I've seen that. And it's colossal and a child could make it rock back and forth. It's so perfectly balanced. 
it's probably fallen over by now. Yeah. <laughs> but like, those are books of wonders. And like I said, they're promissory notes from the universe. Do you I remember, um, do you remember that series, Time Life, Mysteries of the Universe? Mm-hmm. Mysteries of the Unknown? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Stuff like that. I my, love stuff my, like that. We ordered those as a kid. My mom mm. ordered those. They were basically a set of six books, I think. They were black, nicely bound. Uh, but uh, those those really, really inspired me, obviously. Uh, but the book, I, I think, and this won't be surprising either, considering that, uh, the book that I, I, th- I found a copy of an, uh, a collection of Edgar Allan Poe's poems when I was 14. And I think that probably, for me, was a book of power, I mm-hmm. think. Interesting. Um, but I'm trying to think now. Uh, there's so many. I mean, that's kind of what... I know. Every book's a Necronomicon. Really. <laughs> really. Yeah, it's Every true. book's a world destroyer and a world maker. Yeah, it's you know? true. I mean, even things like... I remember my, my dad was fascinated with, like, war machines, like jet fighters and tanks and shit like okay. that. And, like, there's a company called Jane's that makes, like, at least used to, back in the day, would make annually, like, all the world's aircraft... Like a, a huge hardbound book full of pictures of different aircraft, and it would just be like full of specifications of like the power of their engines and how fast they could fly and their you know their maximum altitude and all of these different things. You know that's about that's pretty banal, but like I remember being a kid, and it wasn't just like the page after page after page of facts, numbers, and pictures of airplanes, but like the smell of the book. The fact it was so huge, this giant hardback. I mean, now as an adult, none of that means anything to me. Like you're right. talking about Edgar Allan Poe, you probably still read Poe on occasion. Yeah. Like there is probably things from that that have left permanent traces in your imagination. I can tell you that the we're not the, talking uh, about the same thing. The, the, I'm sure the, you the, have your own experience like that. You're talking about something more, more interesting. I think. Oh yeah. I thought it was less interesting. But, no, no, no. I but think it's, it's more interesting what you're talking about because, I, you know, oh, mine was a girl in Poe. That's not what I meant. I was just trying to think of a book that I, that, that still No, I know what you mean, but it's like, you but know, but you're talking things, about something much more interesting. Well, I'm thinking about like how books are when you're a kid and they, and the magical potentiality of books is so palpable. And these books almost like glow on the shelf, yeah. you know, because yeah. Partly because you don't understand them. I mean, so many of my parents' books, I couldn't understand. I mean, fucking books of symbolic logic and shit. I mean, my dad, yeah, was, a dad was a philosophy professor. Yeah. Um, I holding these things. Those. Yeah, I know. I mean, just holding these things in my hand and like paging through and looking at these eldritch signs in the page. You can imagine that they're anything you want. I want to say something about that because there is one type of book that has disappeared. The reference book. Yeah. Right. That's phone, gone. Phone books and stuff. Phone books catalogs, mm-hmm. uh, picture books uh, are much less common now. I now know what I should have said at the beginning in okay. answer to your question. The, the fucking Eaton's catalog. Right. Right. That was a, a world of magic. A world of magic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, especially... Christmas time. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> you would just study the pictures yeah. of toys. Yeah. And it wasn't even necessarily like some acquisitive thing. Like, I never bullied my parents or... Like, no. no, I'm saying that now. My mom might have a different memory. <laughs> I should ask my mom what she remembers of yeah. this. But, like, I don't remember, like... Asking my parents for like real specific things very often. I do remember really, really wanting the um, 
uh, like a, there was a Star Trek toy where you would put little Star Trek doll figurines and the way they made it look on the TV is that they would just dematerialize like in the show. <laughs> wow. And I was like, I, <laughs> shit, I want that. <laughs> I'm sure it was really, I'm sure it was just like the doll goes in the slot and you press a button and just right. goes floomp out the bottom right. or something, right? Yeah. But, and even, you might even suspect on some, because, you know, like when you're a kid, it doesn't take long before you are severely disappointed by right. certain toys. Right. But you would just, like, the joy was in looking at the pictures and imagining. Imagining. And, and just trying as hard as possible to put yourself in the toy somehow. Yeah. These things had this animistic power. Yeah. The, uh, I've been thinking about reading Lovecraft, about the idea of scale in Lovecraft. I think Lovecraft is a, he's someone who scrambled scales. So, I think I've mentioned before, one theory that I have is that the great old ones in one sense are just basically germs but just instead of blown making, up yeah instead of making yeah, them tiny and that. making them huge but they look like the great old ones look like germs uh, like, yeah. for example, take a water bear and imagine what, it water bear Why would imagine you it's it 75 feet tall and that's fucking terrifying yeah that's and Lovecraftian the, and, and even the terms that are used to describe certain microbes are Lovecraftian because you're combining different well, water look, bear for example yeah water bear you or could you, imagine that in a black actually in a like a blackwood story like the, we just did the wendigo last time right like the or, water or bear. think of um like certain viruses it looks like a ball a spiked ball a sphere with spikes coming yeah tentacles i mean the, the language Jesus, you need yeah, to describe true. aesthetically these germs is a language that lovecraft uses to describe the great old ones kids are really good at playing with scale they have yeah, no sense of that's scale. True. And so my daughter, Fiona, she's playing with her... She'll play for hours on her own with her, her uh, little bonhommes. This is the word, there's no word in English for this. In French, we call them the bonhommes. These are basically little figures. Figurines. Yeah. And she'll invent these. And I the can English see, call them action men. A- action men? I never even heard that. Or yeah. action figures. Or, 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 or like, yeah, exactly. But they're not action figures for her. They're, they're mostly like Barbies and stuff. But dolls? I don't know. They're like these little... Bonhomme's a great word. I think yeah. it should be. Let's, I think we, the we, should, we should make bonhomme happen. Yeah. Um, but okay, so, like, our listeners should all just be dropping it casually in conversation, seeing if they can make it stick. A lot of my uh, friends picked up a bonhomme for my yeah, kids. A lot of a lot of exogamous Ooh. families around here, like people, like in Canada. So there's often many families here will have one French Canadian with an English an Anglophone. They all adopt the word bonhomme. It just becomes so. Eventually, I think it will become an English word. But the point is that um, kids are really good at going, you were saying, getting into the toy. Yeah, totally. D- d- descending to the level yep, of the toy. Exactly. But I remember even looking through grass at ants and stuff. Yeah. You remember? And then you go totally. down and you were there. It's like, you know what I did with that? It was a Christmas tree. Every year that we put yeah, up a Christmas look tree. look into the tree. Yeah. Yeah. And you're in there. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. And you might as well be on the forest moon of Endor exactly. and like, yeah. you know, like the fucking Ewoks and the, oh, man, the tree. I would, get, I would get a physical thrill from looking into the Christmas tree and to this day when we do the Christmas tree at home I always try like you gotta put some of the ornaments inside the tree yeah. so when you look inside you see this depth you know yeah but uh, I've never talked about that with anybody I'm so psyched that there's someone else in this world but, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening you'll feel the same but those um, are things that are so elusive to adult consciousness but holy shit are they real when you're when you're little they are but I think there's a way to get back to that and I think that that's what we talk about often in our conversations we're talking about how uh, the particular world we live in 
on one in one sense is just basically contingent upon the scale at which we experience. So we have mm. these or the, the faculties we have to experience. So we have these eyes, these ears, we're this size. So we don't see things that size and we don't see things of, of that humongous size. We see things in this, I think there's a term in physics called the zone of middle dimensions, which is the world where Newtonian laws apply. Ah. But outside the zone of middle dimensions, you have the uh, astronomical or world of, of Einstein's astrophysics. Mm-hmm. And then below the zone of middle dimensions, you have the, like the quantum world, the quantum world, the molecular world of, um, you know, of, of, of particle physics. So that's small, infinitely small world. But what makes the zone of middle dimensions the zone of middle dimensions it's humans. Mm. There's nothing that we can find in our investigations into nature that would determine the zone of middle dimensions as a zone. And then we're going back into our zone stuff, which is interesting. Because the only thing that makes the zone of middle dimensions, the middle, that zone, is the fact that we are experiencing it. So in other words, if you were to remove humans from the universe, theoretically, according to the classic, if you think logically the zone of middle dimensions would disappear if you were to remove, right? Or would it just exist in a sense? But how, you know, it's an interesting question. I think it, it, would, it would keep existing. But that means that that's why playing with scale is so important because by playing with scale, you enter into different zones, into new zones, into new places that are just as real but unnoticed by the adults, by the grown-ups. The grown-ups don't see the wonderland that kids have access to. They get to sense that reality unfolds on multiple levels, multiple scales. I don't know if that quite makes sense. I'm thinking I'm making more poetic point than a real argument, but... um, Yeah, I mean, and that's so different from what we usually do. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Actually, it's a neat thing. That's a neat thought, because then you think, well, how has it changed human culture that we are able to imagine things on scales that were literally unimaginable to our ancestors like being able to comprehend at least on an intellectual level the vastness of the universe understand like okay so just the other day i read the andromeda galaxy i believe has something like a trillion stars mm-hmm. can't grasp the number trillion like i can't no, you can't. I, I mean, I can grasp that it's a one followed by how many zeros? Twelve or something? I can't remember. It's a lot of zeros. A whole yeah, lot of zeros, sounds right? Yeah. Or maybe it's not. Yeah, billions is uh, nine zeros. Yeah. So I think trillions is twelve. Yeah. Yeah, but that doesn't. What the fuck is that? I can't even imagine no, twelve you can't. zeros. You can't imagine it because that's why in the I Ching, in Chinese, in, the, in Taoism, the term they use for a, the, the most things possible is the 10,000 things. Yeah. Because you can't imagine anything beyond 10,000. You can imagine 10,000. And you know, there's all these debates when there's a big protest. Mm-hmm. There's a debate like, like how many the people conservative people will say, oh, there were just 2,000 people. And then the progressive will say, there were 20,000. Because from a photo, you can't fucking tell. Yeah. You know, you need to get like fucking private investigators to go in and like pull out and try to figure out how many people per square inch on this photograph right. fit. So in a sense, we can't imagine which trillions. We can say, we can say it. But, but, the, but you can, yeah, but I mean, so maybe, medieval so, maybe we, yeah. so maybe we can't actually, maybe we're not, okay, I'm reversing where I was going. I was like, maybe like we just have a fundamentally different way of experiencing the world simply because 
we're capable of imagining things that are not on a human scale. But maybe actually we've never successfully imagined those things. Well, or we always did. But the difference is we've always imagined non-human scales. And that's what mythology is, right? The underworld. Mm. And, but the, the difference is that in the um, pre-modern age, ages, those scales were offloaded. They were put into these transcendental realms, in eo tempore, this other place, this other place right. under the earth. Whereas now, the modern age is precisely the moment where those scales become part of this world. And that's what I like about modernity. Is that the world? Unf- there are planets. It unfolds like an accor- like an accordion, right? Like Mercury, the planet Mercury is a real place that is absolutely identical to classical de- depictions of what hell is like. Mm-hmm. It's a burning, a realm of burning, just embers and brimstone and, and fire. Yeah, that's what it is, and it really exists. So and now it's... we know that hell exists. <laughs> Everybody tells you there's no such thing as hell. It's like go to Mercury. It's fucking hell, <laughs> literally. You know, um, so so I like that about modernity. I like this imminentizing of all these mythical realms, and all of a sudden, space just receding further. The further you look, the more it recedes out of your. That's a cool thought, man. Imminentizing of mythological realms. Yeah. That's a really nice, that's a nice way of putting it. It's a nice idea because it's a little bit like there's this book that came out recently and has gotten a certain amount of play by Jason Josephson's Storm called The Myth of Disenchantment. Right. Which I've read part of and it's okay. I mean, I dig it. It's cool. Um, Basically, I feel like there's a little bit of smoke and mirrors with that book. The um, occult writer Gyrus pointed this out. It was a really good essay review he did of this book which we should put in the show notes yeah Gyrus is a fantastic person yeah he's awesome he wrote a really good book called North which I I haven't read it yet yeah yeah I've got it on my shelf similar in some ways to Gordon White's book that everybody was raving about last year Starships I'm getting off track Gyrus reviewed oh yeah 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 this Josephson Storm book it's a little bit of a He's playing with words a little bit because he's like, oh yeah, disenchantment is a myth, but he's playing with this. sense like we, you normally think of myth meaning like something untrue. And uh, what he really means is it's a myth in the sense, in the mythological sense of like, it's a certain kind of truth. Right. You know, but that the actual truth is far more complex that it's not like suddenly an imagination possible to our forebears became impossible to us. And I totally agree with that. I think that, there's a real danger if you take, you know, the Max Weber hypothesis of disenchantment. If you take it too literally, you think that, like, well, no, nah, a yeah. world with no demons, a world with no we angels. Finally woke so, up. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, no, yeah. yeah it's, it's absurd. One of the things is that come, comes out when you start thinking about, like, okay, so are we disenchanted, really? Is, moder- is modernity really an era of disenchantment? I don't think it could ever be. I don't think that's possible. I think, but this idea that, for example, with our being able to talk about things happening on a quantum scale, for example, becomes itself like, I I love what you said, imminentizing mythology. Right. That becomes a way that all of those thoughts and feelings come rushing back in disguised forms. All the demons. Yeah. Uh, and angels come capering back and they're just wearing like 
you know, Groucho Marx glasses and yeah. nose and right. you know what I mean? Right, right. I mean, what's a dinosaur but a dragon that walked the earth? I mean, seriously. <laughs> and, and, uh, and somehow it's really important. So, yeah, but it really walked. Yeah, but, but, but what the fuck are you? Yeah, I don't care what you're, that's, you're describing these monsters that once lived here. And um, ask any little kid. I mean, that's yeah. why kids fucking love dinosaurs. Yeah. Why I love dinosaurs yeah. to this day. It, I still go to look at the dinosaurs. Despite the one. Jurassic Park franchise, even um, Jurassic Park has not managed to kill. Yeah. And and also, I have to say, it bums me out that Tyrannosaurus Rex has become like a giant mutant space chicken. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen like the, the modern reconstruction? Like they're just huge, weird looking chickens. They gave feathers and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I, fuck I, that. I liked it when they looked all I scaly cannot, and naked. I can't help but believe, you know, okay, so dinosaurs used to be these awful, these basically these Darwinian machines of survival, of destruction, and, of destruction. Yeah, pure. And every picture of dinosaurs is just they're eating their each mouth. other. Yeah, and, and when you go to like old, an old school dinosaur exhibit, all of their mouths are open like. Yeah, and I, I once said to Helen and the kids when we were going through one of these exhibitions, I like to imagine that on other worlds they have like stuffed, mounted human beings, and we all have our mouths open, like yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're all imagine, like just everybody with their jaws agape, right? Because right. yeah. we love that. That's what we want to imagine. I had a book. I had a dinosaur book when I was a kid. It was, there, was, there was seriously there was a picture of two dinosaurs eating each other. <laughs> At the same yes! time, yeah, like sixty nining it, <laughs> like it was awful. Like seriously, one was eating it, and they were just eating each other. They were just like ripping flesh off, and you can see these like nineteen. This was what is that? But the Ouroboros. Well, it was a picture of the Ouroboros, so that's interesting. But except the Ouroboros is one thing; these were two dinosaurs yeah, going man, at it. Whatever Pisces, maybe I don't know. There's something about the the two fishes. But that's like that. That is a figure straight out of mythology. It is. It is. But my point was. The, the dinosaurs used to inhere in this very Darwinian kind of like oh, like survival of the fittest vision. Mm. And now that scientists have become very progressive, mm-hmm. uh, very much about symbiosis and all this. Now dinosaurs the have feathers. The mouths are closed. The mouths are closed. They have feathers. They're, descend- they're not um, the ancestors of reptiles. They're not reptiles at all. They were birds. They were warm-blooded. And the science starts to adopt. I'm not yeah. trying to say that there's nothing to that this. There's science. no underlying physical stratum of reality. Yeah, that is not that's what not what I'm saying. saying. I'm just saying it's interesting to see how you can never separate the political from the scientific and the metaphysical. All these Absolutely. things seem to work together. Yeah. And and there's a chicken or, or the egg thing. I'm sure that probably dinosaurs did have feathers, like the latest scientists say. Um, on the other hand. I've always been very skeptical of paleontology. Like they, they find like three bones and reconstitute this An fucking entire monster. animal from like <laughs> two two teeth and a clavicle. Yeah, or the one with like, that has claws for thumbs. You ever seen that? Oh one? yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's uh-huh. like what the fuck, really? What does he? How does he use that? Like like does he shiv his enemies? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I used to know the names of all these things because my son Iguanodon is that the one? Maybe. I think Iguanodon is the one with the... Th- he, so basically it's his little hands and instead of thumbs he's got these huge spikes. Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. It's not Iguanodon. No. Oh shit. I don't know. It's like... But then they found out it's like oh but actually they use those for like stripping leaves off of you know like bamboo or right. something bamboo-like. <laughs> right, right. So disappointing. Like you've got these like fucking Freddy Krueger hands. Yeah, yeah. And you're just like... 
Yeah, you just use peeling leaves. Le- you're just making a salad with them. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. It's and yeah, of course. I mean, the, the one of the, the the best writers I've read on this in this field of like showing the mythology in science is William Irwin Thompson. I don't know if you've read any of his work. He He's a fantastic... Name rings a bell. Fantastic writer. He wrote a book called The Times Falling Bodies Take to Light, which is uh, a fantastic book about um, hominization and the beginning of civilization and how we move from matriarchy to patriarchy, which is also in itself a a myth. Uh, We don't know how or if we ever move from matriarchy to patriarchy. That's all. But he explores But you're saying myth also in that double sense. It's just like also like that's a certain kind of truth or like... That's yeah, a story we a tell that, story. that says some that's that's saying something about like us and how right. we're picturing our place in the world. This is interesting. The word myth and actually Thompson in that book, I believe, at the beginning of the introduction, uh, breaks down the various meanings of the word myth. And um, you know, the old work myth, the old word mythos in Greek meant basically an account, mm. right? A story. Mm. This is what happened. That's a myth. And today, myth has this double meaning. So myth might mean this grandiose story that determines how these little stories we live pan out. So that's the mythology, like these. And then myth is something that's simply not true. A myth is something people believe that isn't true. And he tracks how through various stages in history we move from different meanings of from one meaning of myth to another. And now we have to go back to the. Unsurprisingly, he argues that we have to go back to that that fundamental. Um, Myth as that which tells us the truth about the nature, not just of the human condition, but of the universe. And what he shows is that the the scientists looking for uh, the key to life will find DNA. But the concept of the you know the double helix is already a symbol in cult science, and everything they find just reaffirms and reframes old occult ideas, or um, you know that. Uh, yeah, the the double helix looks suspiciously like the caduceus. Well, yeah, yeah. So you but that's, the and that's not a, that's not an original idea. I've no, heard that the about caduceus, a million times. The caduceus originated in India as a symbol for Kundalini because in Kundalini you have two. I think you have two: the, the red and the blue energy, the male and female. Oh, energies. okay. They're locked. They're they're coiled up at your root chakra at the bottom of your spine, and then when you release the Kundalini, the Kundalini is, is that the, the two of them spiraling up around. to your crown chakra and they cross and they form a caduceus with your spine in the middle. Ah, interesting. And that's DNA. And yeah, well, I mean, so you could be a real idealist about this and say, see, no matter how much we <laughs> dig, we just see more of our own ideas. But that, that to me is, a, is, a, is tautological because how we, why would the helix mean anything unless it has some kind of sub, substantial reality out there? Why, you know, so I... I don't think we're making up reality as we go. I think we're discovering reality as we go. Mm. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, this, uh, I don't think we're disenchanted at all. I think we've... No. I, I mean, I find that the 20th century now with some retrospect, we can look back and look at it, the so-called age of disenchantment. It's a fucking romantic time. I mean, that's Indiana Jones's time, man. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it doesn't get that's much right. more enchanted than the 1930s or the war or the... It's true. People were possessed by ideas, uh, with ideas. Or like your own medium of film. Yeah. Like, you know, there's a beautiful book by Jeffrey O'Brien called Phantom Empire. 
Have you ever heard of that book? I've heard of it. I've never read it. No. Yeah. Yeah. He's one of my favorite critics. He's a, you know, he's a beautiful writer. He also he also wrote a book called Sonata for Jukebox, which is a series of gorgeous essays about music, including I think the, uh, a particularly wonderful essay about Burt Bacharach, who. I love Burt Bacharach. I love Burt yeah. Bacharach, man. Yeah. He's a master. Something that I love about O'Brien is he's really sensitive to these hidden emotional resonances and things. And, well, I mean, that's what a good critic does, right? But he's really picks up on cinema, film, is something just essentially magical. And magical in the, not in the kind of the magic of the movies kind of way, but in the sense that like Jack Smith, like this is a few episodes ago when Mm -hmm. we were talking about Jack Smith and our Trash Stratum 2 episode, that kind of magic. Yeah. Um, the difference that makes a difference the, 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 the type of magic that changes things. yes yeah. and the sense that I mean and getting back to one of our pet ideas or certainly one of my pet an idea that I love to think about the idea of the zone mm-hmm. you know and the idea of the zone as it is in Tarkovsky's Stalker and thinking about like artworks as zones the idea of like sitting there in the dark watching shadows flickering on a screen but they unfold a depth they unfold a world yeah. I remember I remember saying I thought that an important aspect of the zones is that you can enter them yes. and yet they're impossible that's you the you can't stay in them you can't yeah yeah. you can have them but you can't keep them no. and that's the thing about going to the movies you know the Woody Allen film Purple Rose of Cairo yeah you know where the 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 this corny hero played, I think, by Jeff Daniels of some just cheesy movie that the sort of sad depression era heroine goes to the movies to right. to escape her problems and escape into her world. And one day the, the hero, the square-jawed hero of some stupid jungle flick or something, steps off the screen and they have a romance. This is a, like a, a way of telling the story that like the world's unfolded by those flickering shadows. Those, yeah. are, those are zones. You can, you can enter them, but you can't stay there. Yeah. And they can... I mean, if we talk about books that can change your life, we talk about, certainly talk about films, films that change your life. For real. A, a, a film can... The operation that a great film represents, what it does to your psyche, is uh, it has the same granularity as any type of physical experience. It's something that, that hits you on every level. Um, I had the fortune, you were talking about seeing, um, earlier you were talking about getting to see Naked Lunch, David Cronenberg's yeah. film, at the movie theater, in yeah. an empty movie theater. Mm-hmm. That film is a f- is fantastic. I got the opportunity to see Mulholland Drive in an empty theater on a Sunday night at 10.30 in Toronto. Wow. And that nice. was... Uh, it, yeah, it was insane, but the walk home was absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. I was so scared. That movie shook me. Yeah, terrified me. So, what about that film scared you? I'm not saying like, uh, like, what, what, oh, it's so hard to understand how somebody because there's some like absolutely terrifying things in that. Yeah. Film. Well, I, that, personally, I would say that David Lynch is is the most successful horror filmmaker ever. For me, mm. his films are absolutely terrifying because they throw you in a world where you really don't know what might happen next, and yet you are central to some kind of machination that you can't understand. I mean, he really writes films about people caught up. Yeah. And it's, you can really see this in Blue Velvet. His films are about, about people getting caught up in processes that 
just completely outstrip them. Yeah. They can't ever even fathom what they're yeah. about. And, and uh, often that yeah. comes out as, uh, in a genre sense, as like being neo-noir, like film noir. Yeah, right. Because like the classic noir narrative is a kind of descent into hell where a guy just uh, claims a juster or some shit, like just some really normal, like mundane job. And one day he's having lunch and he meets a girl and, she, you know, she asks him to do a job for him and for her or whatever. And he finds himself ensnared in a web of intrigue from which there's no escape. And there's no doubt that David Lynch uh, is drawing a lot on noir, uh, especially in the Mall and Drive, where yeah. he, he very deliberately adopts or Lost Highway, yeah. Uh, yeah, or Blue Velvet. But then at the same time, it doesn't have to be that genre. It's uh, like in uh, Twin Peaks season three; it isn't. No, it's not. There's uh, nothing it, terribly noirish about it. Genres for him are just a tool. He's exactly. trying to get his vision out there. Yeah. I mean, Eraserhead is all about that. Someone mm-hmm. caught in a process that he can't control and he has to just somehow live through. He has to somehow get through it. But it's not neo-noir. It's it's pure horror. I would say right. that Eraserhead is oh, a horror film. That's a film I've only managed to watch once. The, yeah. the scene where Henry kills the baby yeah. is the most horrifying thing I've ever seen in a film. Yeah, it is. Because, and it goes beyond gore. It goes so far beyond that. It's some... It's a it's deep hurting. Yeah, I, yeah. it hurts you deeply. Yeah, you got like deep inner bruises from watching that. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, yeah. That that's a type of film that changes you. You know, it did change me. Yeah, I forget if I've ever talked about this on this show, but like that is for me one of the the formative events of my entire life was just accidentally stumbling into I'm pretty sure it was a double feature of Eraserhead and Blue Velvet oh my god seven, at age 17 whoa okay <laughs> I didn't know you never told me about that it's like industrial <laughs> sized it's, it's yeah. like people who have like their stories like oh yeah the first time I took acid I took like yeah you know I, I don't know say, what a big dose of that would be but like a heroic sized dose you know it, yeah. that was what I was like just stumbling into that no shit yeah, it was a Bloor Street cinema, so my mom and I had moved from Sudbury, Ontario to Toronto. Bloor Street cinema is a fantastic. Such a great... Is it still there? Is it still exist? I think so. It was last I checked. Yeah. I kind of feel like, you know, there's a story that, like, when the Ravens in the Tower of London, when they leave, then the monarchy will fall. That's yeah. like a legend, so, like, they're very careful to keep the Ravens in good order in the Tower of London. That's... Uh, I kind I of... That shit. What's that? I really love that. Show. I know, me too. <laughs> I kind of feel like when the Bloor Street Theater closes, then Toronto, the genius Loki that is Toronto, is officially yeah. dead. It'll just it'll just sink into Lake Ontario. Yeah, or, or it will just become condos. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Probably, most likely. Uh, but yeah, so so you. But but, but you know, we, my mom had this apart, this shithole basement apartment, which is all. She could afford when we moved to Toronto. We moved to Toronto at like the worst possible time when there was a real estate panic on, so you couldn't yeah. find a place to live. And so I was always trying to escape this dank basement apartment, and I would go to the Bloor Street Cinema, which was just down the street. It was like a block away, and I didn't care what was playing. I, you know, it was I forget what it was, but it was cheap. It was like a buck fifty or two bucks or something. I would just plunk my money down and sit there, and I and uh, I, that's how I stumbled into Eraser and Blue Velvet. 
I came out of I, I, I came out of there a different person from who I was when I walked in. I didn't know what it was I saw. I didn't know that it was I mean, I grew up in Sudbury, Ontario. The only films I ever saw were things like Spies Like Us with fucking Chevy Chase. <laughs> <laughs> or um Teen Wolf Two. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah right, right. That was movies. Right. Yeah. Maybe and, a real genius, remember that? One? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, for you fancy art film people, yeah, like maybe real genius, genius, right? Um, but I didn't know that, like, you could even do that. I mean, and I wasn't, like, ignorant of art as such. I was, like, an avid, I mean, very serious music. classical pianist, and I was planning on going to music school and so on. Yeah. But, you know, just like, yeah, but movies are just movies. I didn't know you could do that. Yeah. I didn't know what I was looking at. It compl- it shook me so deep. And it's funny, years later, David Foster Wallace wrote an essay called David Lynch Keeps His Head. For- oh, I never read that. Yeah, it's a good essay. You should read it. Uh, David Lynch was invited by Premier Magazine to, I think it was Premier Magazine to, he, they gave him like some access to the shoot for Lost Highway. And so he just was hanging out on set of Lost Highway and he wrote about his experiences. But it was really an opportunity for him to write about David Lynch, who was his, one of his big heroes yeah and um he has a great thing that he says he was uh don bartleney the short story writer don bartleney oh he's he's awesome shria's stuff you you would dig it i think you would dig it but he liked to use an expression he says an erection of the heart (laughs) (laughs) like when encountering a work of art that just yeah is so on point it's right. so it hits you so it's just such it's like the it's like luke skywalker shooting that torpedo into the death star right. just hitting exactly right it's that kind of thing it just fucks you up and it transforms you and it leaves you feeling so, like so exhilarated so buzzing on the inside you almost don't know what to do with it yeah you know that feeling oh, yeah, yeah. That he said, like that's what Blue Velvet made me feel when I first saw it, and and that's also that is also how I felt when yeah. I encountered Lynch's stuff. I first and saw so it. I was so happy to read Dave, and then David Foster Wallace became one of my favorite writers. But I was so happy to see like that happened to somebody else with the same film. Oh, I'm know? sure it happened. To, I mean, I saw it. I was young when I saw it. I was about. I there was um so on this one French uh, network here in Canada. Quatre saisons, four seasons. It was like it was a, one of the networks, the cable mm-hmm. channels we got. On Saturday nights at eleven thirty, there was a showcase kind of spot called Blue Nuit, which uh, were dirty movies. So I was going to say that yeah. sounds Blue Night, sounds yeah. sexy. So they would play um, very <laughs> light, fair kind of porno uh, stuff. They're basically Euro with like Euro tastefully porn. placed potted plants, right? No, no, but and and very a lot of moaning. And yeah, moaning and, and, and but no penetration in any of that. It was it was pretty tame stuff. It was perfect stuff for an eleven year old to acquaint himself <laughs> with the mystical <laughs> realities of sexual adulthood. So I would I would um, obviously try to stay up uh, on Saturday nights, and my parents would go to sleep, and then I'd crawl down again and try to watch Blue Nuit. And uh, that one night I, I went. I finally managed to stay awake. I go down. I turn the TV on. I put the volume on the minimum. Oh, yeah. And then I see the Blue Nuit logo come on, and then the movie starts, and it's this dude walking through a park, and he finds, uh, after a very bizarre uh, introductory sequence, there's a guy, and he finds this ear, ant-ridden 
Ah. Just here. She stumbled on blue velvet yeah, like that. That was that was the, so I was expecting ah. to see you know like boobs uh, an titillating uh, titillating movie of, 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 boobs of, and potted of, palms. Yeah, when you call them those films, they're not really soft porn kind of film. And, yeah, and what I saw instead was blue velvet, and it. What did they call them on, on Showtime after hours? I mean, eleven. That scene with, uh, with the first scene with Dennis Hopper when he comes in and he's got that... Fucking terrified. Yeah. I remember like my testicles just retreating, <laughs> whimpering up into my body cavity when that motherfucker showed up on screen. Oh, <laughs> oh my you know? god, he was the... like Dem- Dennis Hopper as Frank Booth was the scariest fucking thing I'd ever seen. Yeah. He's pure toxic masculinity. <laughs> pure malevolent. Yeah. Just like... You know that scene where they're at Ben's, which... Fucking hell! That whole scene at Ben's. Oh, with uh, is that um, what's his name? Like, character? Yeah, where, where Dean Stockwell, Dean Stockwell yeah. uh, is uh, Ben, and he right. grabs the the light and he starts uh, lip syncing along to In Dreams. Yeah, that whole nightmare scene. Yeah, the exaltation. Yeah, at the end of the like, you see, I that's something that Lynch really loves is showing pictures of people being moved by music. Oh, yeah. And I love that. There's so many scenes of people crying while listening to music. Yeah. And that's one of them. And I love the fact that it's never explained. It's typical of Lynch. But, like, that was one of the things that as this uh, callow 17-year-old stumbling quite by accident into the... And to see these films... Yeah. That that blew me away. It was just, like, you can just show things that remain mysteries. You know? So we see Frank Booth's face and he's listening to the song. And he has this... Some profound inner transformation something just clicks or tears inside of him and you see the outward sign of it in his face you never find out what that is yeah but then the end like he uh switches off the sound and i and i only notice that later much later i'm re-watching the film he's like now it's dark right right and uh and then he just is filled with this exaltation yeah Hit the fucking road! I'm gonna fuck everything that moves! And then Lynch just does this thing where it's just a jump cut. You see him screaming and then it's gone. And you hear the scream of tires. Right, right, right. I remember that. Oh, and it's just like... And the idea of somebody possessed like that. This fantastic inner vitality that just pours out of them, but it's evil. It's amoral. It's complete... Or it's pure evil, really. Um... Do you remember the scene where he he, he, he uses oxygen? Like or some the, kind of gas. Yeah, and again, kind of gas we'll never find out what it is. Did you know what, in the script what it was supposed to be? And Dennis Hopper didn't want to do it? It was supposed to be helium. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so so he would then have this weird yeah, voice. Little voice. Yeah, that's what Lynch wanted to do. And then Lynch in the end was like, you're probably right. It's probably too much for, for the audience to see that. Can you imagine? Oh. Maybe he wants the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> that, would, that, would that would be a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that, would be too much. that would be a lot to take yeah. in. So uh, that film is something else. Anyways, that's... I mean that's a, actually that's a. We started off talking about books that are like books of power, but now we're really talking about like objects of power, right? And once you start thinking about all the different like, you know, their films and their books, but they're also things like the Eaton's catalog or whatever. Like yeah. the world is just strewn with these. Yeah, or or like the or another thing occurred to me when we were talking about dinosaurs a moment ago is like the 
the way they used to have the dinosaurs displayed at the Royal Ontario Museum. Right. Where I went all the time as a kid. And I remember one time we got there, like my dad was on sabbatical. This is when I was a little kid. I was maybe five or six. And we got there so early that it was before opening hours. But some, I mean, they wouldn't do this now. But at the time, there's some kindly guard who was like, oh, why don't you go in? That's okay. It was free back then. You didn't pay to get in. I couldn't, I can't remember. I mean, yeah. you know. You know, my parents always were with us or, you know, but like they just let us go in. And I remember like my sister and me just going our separate ways and just being able to walk through these empty, deserted hallways full of bones. Yeah. And it's been a long time since they had the display the way it was. And it's real old school. Yeah. You know, but like especially the room with the, there was like a, an ichthyosaur and a plesiosaur, like these sea-going dinosaurs yeah. that were, had been mounted and they had this sort of blue wavy light and they just pumped in like you know humpback whale song right just to give you like a sense of like you know it's the watery depths right, right? right it's totally right. anachronistic and they would never do that now because you know we have to fulfill our duty to science yeah but you know that that too is like not a book of power but like a a place of power. a place of power Places or events do. Yeah. That's why presence may be a better word than event. Um, maybe I was just I was you were just convincing me to think that maybe event is a better word than presence. I've been well, saying presence for years, but maybe event is better. There's a perspectival thing. I mean, everything is space and time. So event tends to talk about the time element in a presence, which is a spatial thing. Mm, like it's I true. think it's the same thing, but. But uh, when we talk about uh, a city, a town, you, you, earlier you were saying that if the Bloor Cinema disappeared, then Toronto would, would lose its genius loci, which means its spirit of place. And that was one of the things we were thinking of talking, thinking about, of talking today. about today. And I think maybe we can maybe we can that. pivot to that. Yeah. Okay, we can take the opportunity to pee. Yeah, let's do that. break it down etymologically or, or yeah. define it. Genius means spirit. Mm -hmm. Loki means of a place. Right. Locus. Yeah. Now we were starting to have a conversation about this and realized that the machine wasn't running. So you were saying just a moment ago that genius loci or low, low key can be considered sort of synonymous with, you know, presence or event. Yeah. yeah. And I was just saying that I thought that I mean, my first thought is that, no, it's almost exactly the opposite of presence. Because presence, for me, is that which is radically imminent. Yes. Like, your presence before me is, like, there. it is, it's not a hypostasis from something else. Right. It's not a projection from elsewhere. It's not like I'm looking at uh, an imperfect, contingent J.F. Martel projected from the ideal realm of forms J.F. Martel. Yeah. Um, that it, you in all of your physical immediacy is what there is, is the truth of J.F. Martel. Um, that to me is presence. Whereas when people talk about the spirit of this or the spirit of that, spirit of place, and maybe this is just a limitation of my imagination, but I imagine like a, 
Like those old Bugs Bunny cartoons where the cat that's been chasing the bird finally gets his comeuppance and is flattened by an anvil or some shit. And, and you see the little, the, angel the little angel cat wafting upwards. And so spirit is like the separable thing, something separable from the brute material um, uh, presence yeah. of someone or something. Uh, and and, and yeah. the challenge for actually is thinking of Genius Loki not as like some kind of hypostasis or hypostasis. How the fuck do you pronounce hypostasis? it? Hypostasis? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that sounds better. Hypostasis. It's not a hypostasis of the place, but in some way is identical with it. Yeah. But that's hard to imagine. It's. I think what we mean by presence is the manifestation of something in the field of experience, as experience. Like, for example... Like when people say, oh, you can look at, you can take pictures of Paris. You can take a picture of every building in Paris, but you'll still won't add them all up. You look at them, even if you collect, <coughs> you know, like if they sample the various yeah. smells of Paris, you can just ingest all this information. You'll never know what it's like until you're just stepping, you're just move, yeah. walking through Paris. But all you have to do is walk through Paris once and you get it all. Because there's yeah. there's that event, that, that and that's what the, the Romans referred to as the genius of something. Uh, the spirit, I don't think they were talking at all about something that's, maybe some of them were, maybe the Platonists among them were, at some, or the Neoplatonists, those fuckers. <laughs> they were talking about something like little Casper the Ghost floating up. And, but what, what, what it means is that, and this is something we, got, we mentioned in the beginning, in Deleuze, the event is always virtual. It's never actual. <laughs> but what is imminent, what is imminent is always the virtual plus the actual. Right. You know, I'm going to stop right there and say, I think that I've never understood what Deleuze means by the virtual. Okay. I'm realizing this now. Yeah. I mean, st- staring into your cold, dead eyes. <laughs> I, I, I don't actually know what that means. The, the virtual is the... Um, well, okay, a lot of people have written about what Deleuze means by the virtual. Um, but I think what he means by the virtual is exactly what you mean by presence. Uh, and the virtual is that which is not reducible to all of the actual elements in something. Uh, it's that which escapes a causal, a network of causes. So you'll have a bunch of things happening and then something escapes it. Like he, one of his yeah, famous examples is the battle, right? In a battle, the battle... Okay, so, so you have two armies clashing. Mm-hmm. The battle is the god of war is more present than anything else. But you won't find him anywhere. You can only find him by being in the battle and feeling that the battle is happening. Mm. It's like when you get into a fight. I've only been in a few fights. I've mentioned this on the podcast before. But when the guy was attacking me, I realized I'm in a fight. And it yeah. wasn't the guy I was afraid of. It was the fight. Right, yeah. It was the, yeah. That's right. the event. So where do you uh, find I get that? what you're saying. That's the imminent... That's the virtual. That's, that's, the, vir- that's the virtual. That's huh? the virtual. That's like... But then again... That seems almost 180 degrees opposite from what we customarily mean by the virtual when we talk about like virtual reality. Yeah, but that's, that's you put that's a, a fucking perversion. helmet on and you see this like clumsy approximation of the what word, you would see if you just opened your damn eyes. The word virtual comes from the scholastic, the medieval uh, philosophers. So oh. it's that which could happen. So the virtual in scholastic oh. philosophy meant that which you can't, it's not, it's not mechanically. Uh, something you can locate in the object, but it's 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 its potentiality. So, for one famous example from Deleuze is the the, the cuttingness of the knife. 
That the knife can cut as its virtual aspect. And you can't understand what a knife is until you understand its virtual dimension. Until you understand that the knife can cut. And, uh, and affect, affect into those goes both ways. So the, the, the knife's cutting affect is part of what makes the knife a knife. You can't, you can't take that out. You can't just break the knife down to its molecules or to its mineral components. You have to look at the knife as including that, that cuttingness. That, 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 uh, but that's not physically present in the knife. It is physically present in the knife. Physically understood in this new sense that Deleuze, Deleuze's materialism is a, is a, oh, okay. includes the virtual. And his whole project, in a way, was to bring, again, immanentize a bit the mythological in a sense, to bring that whole spiritual dimension back into matter. I think that was one of the big things he was about. So yes, you're right. There is, when you talk about the spirit of place, well, you're talking about this, this ideal, uh, uh, the ideal Paris, and the, the real Paris is an echo of that. And maybe you'll get a sense of the ideal by being there. That's not what it is. What it is is that only the, the real Paris has to exist or else the ideal doesn't exist. Like, right. Yeah. So that's, that's the kind of idea of the, the virtual, I think. Wow. I really like that. But it means the opposite of what virtual means now, which means fake or simulacrum. Yeah. Virtual today means uh, a, a digital replication of something. That's the, completely the opposite of what huh. the virtual means in Bergson or Deleuze or the medieval philosophers. If I'm understanding you correctly, I'm not sure I am. But, like, the virtual is something that, yeah, it is there, it is a part of the material property of things. Yeah. But... It's perhaps it's something that we contrive not to notice, except perhaps at heightened moments. Like you're talking about violence. Like if you're at a place and violence breaks out, and it it could just be like an angry fight. Like you're at a restaurant and uh, there's a couple arguing, and it goes from like the susurrus of voices to suddenly like angry words, angry accusing words. Yeah that suddenly break into your consciousness and every, you know, like you're in a restaurant, everybody hushes and, and everybody's trying not to rubberneck and like stare right. at the couple. Um, a god has entered the fray. Yeah. That's what's happening. It's not just, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. get that. Yeah. I dig, I dig that. And it's not, it's not something coming from the outside. It's not like the god was going down the street and going, oh, that couple. <laughs> fuck you up it's like no their own animal spirits were clashing and all of a sudden the god shows up out of this event right and, and the event reveals itself um, but it was always going to happen right mm. and that's that's one of the things in Deleuze is it's that not event... like breaking in from the outside this is why it's sort of akin to presence it's right. not like something from outside no it's, it's like, not it's like there it is yeah that's a weird thing about violence is it has this there it is quality right you right. almost can't believe that it's happening in front of you and yet it is it, it's supernatural in that sense it truly is a, I, I don't know maybe the times I've experienced violence by witnessing it it felt like something uh, some fundamental law was broken yes or some some expectation was, was was upended like I remember seeing these two guys fight over a woman in the Byward Market in Ottawa and the one guy just had destroyed the other guy and he was just he was literally just rubbing his face against the pavement just like scraping his the guy's face and and, uh, and I remember seeing that and then everybody's just standing and watching it yeah. and um, trying to muster the courage to summon the courage to go and stop it 
Um, but I was young and afraid, and I was, this guy looked dangerous. I didn't do anything. I feel bad about it. Um, it stopped. The cops showed up. But anyways, the point being that... <laughs> He's still rubbing that, that guy's face. Yeah, yeah somewhere. <laughs> never in stopped. a sense, it is. Yeah. In, in a sense, he's still doing it because, and this is a key thing in Nietzsche. Nietzsche talks about the untimely, and Deleuze really appropriates that idea. And the un- the virtual or the event is always untimely. It's not historical. It's not reducible mm, to the historical yeah. moment. It reveals the eternal in a moment. Mm, so yeah, in a way, I that guy that. is still scraping that other guy's face on the pavement because that's the god that showed up. Yeah, and that god is eternal. Yeah, and um. And, and that's what's scary about these moments is that you're stepping outside of history. You know, this might actually call back to like our episode on boxing, which yeah. remains my least favorite episode because I feel like I completely was unable to get at that strangeness in boxing. Like mm. what I find so strange yeah. about it. But it's exactly that. You in a, a boxing match, which is not, it's not the violence of a guy mashing an, another dude's face again, like, you know against the pavement it's not i mean as we as i try explained it i think probably tedious length like it's ringed around with prohibitions and rules right. to ritualize it so that it's in a sense safe or at least safe-ish safer um although actually now that i think of it one idea that could have been cool to use is this idea from cars you know the, the the ropes and the referee are not there to protect the boxers it's to protect us from the boxers right right you know? right yeah, because what is transpiring in the boxing ring ultimately is the appearance of the god. Yeah, and that is um, that's the best way actually to describe the the fundamental weirdness at the heart of of um, even very ritualized like sport combat, like boxing or mixed martial arts or whatever. And if you and sparring, I'm not going to pretend I'm some like you know unstoppable badass. <laughs> you know, I'm a middle aged hobbyist boxer. Um, you got old man strength. I remember working with, this, <laughs> remember working with these, this crew, these grips, who were talking about old man strength. And they were saying there's just something when you get to middle age, like middle-aged men to 20-some-year-old men look really strong and can probably lift shit just because they're middle-aged and experienced. I want people to believe that about me. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Right. I wouldn't get in a fight with you. So Okay. Yeah. Well, it's very unlikely to happen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Is it? But in, even in sparring where it's as close to perfectly, perfectly safe as you can make boxing. So, like, we're swaddled up in tons of padding and... You know, the coach is there to make sure that we're not hitting with very much force at all. In fact, like, you you know, you, you, you level up from not touching at all. And then, like, very light taps. And then, the certain, you know, you, you level up a little bit. But, like, when you... F- I can tell you, first time I'm it's in the ring and, and there's live punches. It felt... It's indescribable. Like, I, I guess it reminded me of the opening scene. It's an amazing scene from Saving Private Ryan, which it sounds ridiculous because in that opening scene, people are dying in a million horrible ways, whereas I was just being lightly punched, yeah. like wearing this big poofy, I look right. like a gigantic Q-tip. No, you know, but the this realness of it. Ad. But the realness of it, that sense of like, so hyper-real, something just so real, realer than real. Yeah. That this, the absolute presence of that moment, I am actually getting punched in the face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is actually doing it. And you're looking at your opponent's eyes. I remember when I was uh, I got into this fight, and I remember looking at this fucking bro's eyes as he's coming to me. And, and he throws one punch. 
I blocked it. With I blocked it. I'm like, hey! And I was like, I'm literally like in a movie. I was like, I blocked it! And then he comes at me with the other hand. Boom! <laughs> and he knocks so me that's out. That's the problem, man. You, you, you stop to admire your work. <laughs> yeah. I that happened. And there was a weird thing that happens, actually. In boxing. In, in boxing. You'll hear commentators, if you get into boxing, you'll hear commentators talking about it all the time. It's like, yeah, he's getting hit more than he should because, you know, he just he's, he's admiring his own work. Yeah. You hear that a lot. And that actually, I think, gets at something of that, you become the virtual. Little... Yeah. Because you're always trying to capture it. Yeah. It's always coming into being in this impossible, crazy event yes. and, and, and you're always trying to take a picture so that you can represent it to yourself. That is such a key point. The virtual is never, ever revealed to consciousness, but the virtual is the real. So the virtual is that part of, the rea of reality that can't be represented. It's unrepresentable. It's always moving. It's always, uh, it's, uh, and so you can never be conscious of it. You can be conscious of its presence. That's why we can call it a presence, but you can't represent it. So therefore, the minute you start to try to represent it, you're outside of it. You become a little Neoplatonist. All of a sudden, it's Casper the Ghost, and you're separate. And all of a sudden, you're, you're not in the flow, in the, what Bergson calls durée, in that duration yeah. Yeah, of the yeah. moment where you can react, yeah. where you can act before you think. Because in a way, in a sense, it's like thought has to disappear mm -hmm. to be a great boxer, I'm assuming. In a yeah. sense, you're, not think you're thinking with your body. You're not yeah. thinking with your mind. Yeah. The point is this, though. I think the reason why we can call it spirit as well as presence or event is that spirit calls attention to what probably was the key aspect of the virtual manifesting in the, in the imminent. And that is the, the aspect that, that these things always manifest as persons. Like when that's yeah. why the God has entered the fray. When violence yeah. breaks out, there's a strange intelligence that's suddenly present. And you're uh, in the throes of this thing. You need to deal with it, but you need to deal with it as, as a god. And Deleuze is using a, uses a oh, interesting. language of gods. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, and, and this, to tie back quickly, uh, Eduardo um, Castro de Viveros is an anthropologist. I'm reading his work right now. He's a really interesting dude. And he basically talks about um, what he calls American perspectivism. And perspectivism in Amerindian uh, societies. Oh, okay. And what he's talking about is that for indigenous societies, the world is human first and becomes unhuman. So in order to understand what the wolf is or what the crow is or what the bear is, you need to see, see it as a person. And that's something we talked about before when you see a tree as a thou, yeah, as that's a you. True. And when you see it as a you, you see the virtual, you see the soul or the spirit in something. And that's not transcendent. That's totally imminent to the one thing. In fact, it's the, what's transcendent is the concept you project onto things to, to ignore their yeah, uniqueness. Yeah, that's right. The spirit or the soul of it is the imminent part. Um, the uniqueness maybe, of a particular that's instance. something we get out of having pets. Because it's, I mean, especially I feel like in the life, I, the kind of life I live and that I assume that this sort of lifestyle is shared with many of the people who would be listening to this podcast... You know the podcast listening what listening to the podcast at the gym lifestyle you're right. not going around looking at birds and being like how you doing you know like treating them as if they're individual entities like your fellow human beings are no and yet like having a pet allows you to do that with this one animal yeah 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's been some criticism. Like the Deleuze, we were just talking about Deleuze. So I'll keep talking about him. He 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 was very um. He's skeptical. anti dog. No, no, he loves right? he loves wolves. He loves. He doesn't like dogs. He doesn't like Oedipalized animals. Oh, that's you see. <laughs> I, we once had a conversation about this, but it, but but it was an unrecorded conversation. Yeah. I was like, that's bullshit because of course I love dogs. And you love but, your dog. But you have a you had a really funny thing. You were saying like, yeah, well, like a, a dog like barking. Is just a wolf that's pathetically trying to imitate human speech, <laughs> which I thought was a pretty funny idea. Maybe there's something to that, except that I kind of love that about. Well, them. yeah, you love your dog. They're trying. I love dogs. Like you love all dogs. I. It is a rare. I mean, I don't like a dog that's like mean to my dog. Then I want to fucking punt that little motherfucker to the moon. If you know, which there's a dog in my neighborhood um, named Simon. <laughs> now, n- now, now, now deceased, and I, okay. I feel sh- ashamed to say I kind of exalted in its death. Did you poison it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it was just like you know, yeah. it's there are no do- bad dogs. There's just like stupid ass owners, and this, the owner of this dog is like right, just would let it run wild on this one street in my neighborhood. So if I would walk down that street with my dog fucking Simon would come bulleting out of nowhere and this dog once like cocked its leg and peed on my dog <laughs> just like such disrespect yeah, yeah, yeah I get so true. mad at, I get so mad at dogs that are mean mean to other dogs but um I've talked to dogs too like the other day I saw a dog that was like barking aggressively at me and I was like dude come on you don't know me I'm talking to it like it's a person and off, it's amazing to me I believe I'm actually communicating with them. Right. Like maybe they don't understand like propositional language. Who the fuck knows what a dog understands? Well, we know they don't understand propositional language. Oh, I don't know about them. They, they understand the dog? dog. Yes, because I mean they understand a lot. I don't know how they understand, but like I have. Well, they understand tons in a dog way. Yeah, and 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 I would say that I've I've I love animals that that are true to their species. Um, a dog is, and a dog is what inauthentic. No, like, I think dogs dog are great. Like I think dogs wolf. are great. No, 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 no. I don't. I don't dislike dogs at all. I have to say, I'm a big. I'm a dog lover as well. Um, I'm more of a cat man myself because I love animals that refuse after three thousand years to be domesticated. I admire that, but at the Cats same time, are domesticated. They live in your house. They poop in the little box with the sand in it. No, they poop in sand. If you, they poop in sand, and you have to put sand in your house, so they poop in it. That's how it works. Yeah, no, but that is itself an accommodation. You're meeting halfway. Like, well, oh, they poop come in sand, and, and then you got, the, and then you figure out how that accommodates to the human world. I'm sorry, pooping in the litter box is like the cat equivalent to. Like dogs kind of miming human speech, sort of, which I kind of buy. Kind well, no, of buy no, that. cats also mime human speech. I think cats, uh, cats and dogs can animals. Uh, a lot of animals can understand speech. They just don't understand the propositional mm, yeah. aspect of it. So I do think they understand speech. I do think, and also, um, we, we in that this consciousness exists episode. Some people wrote us and asked, "Well, how do you know that animals aren't conscious?" And I, I think. Well, of course, that's true. That my, I think my, at least my argument in that episode was that consciousness doesn't exist even for humans. Like the concept doesn't actually obtain in any real way. So, having established that, mm-hmm. I think yes, animals are definitely alive and experiencing and aware and conscious in, in various senses. 
Um, but I, I we're not denying that, an, non-human animals anything that we reserve for ourselves. Exactly. In fact, we don't. I wouldn't deny. I wouldn't reserve anything to ourselves. Yeah. Um, I don't think that I he, think the human adds anything to reality. I feel like it's really. I think it's for me actually one of the things I love about having a dog is it allows me to remind myself of the continuity of my existence with all the rest of animal and vegetable life. That right. sounds like I'm fucking high when I say that, but you know, you can say animals. Well, we're animals. So you know, I have a I have a PhD student advisee who is working on a topic that has to do with whale song and animal communication. Yeah, and it's sort of like through talking to her, I become like very aware. Like, no, we, the distinction is not between humans and animals, but human animals and non-human animals. Yes. And yes. so, so, and I, or, and, and or, I, yeah, yeah, I think we're on the same page with that. Oh, we're absolutely on the same page. And, and it was Deleuze who doesn't like dogs. And Deleuze was, lived in an apartment in Paris. So you can imagine the type of dogs he was exposed to. Or like the to idea of with. him just coming up with a philosophy to account for the fact he fucking hates his neighbor's dog. No, 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 no. This was in an interview. <laughs> if I was a philosopher, I would totally do that. If I was a philosopher, I would create philosophies in order to explain why I hate Simon. Let's be dog. fair to the poor old man. He, <laughs> he, was, he was talking in an interview about dogs. He, he did say that the so- sound of a dog barking to him was the shame of the animal kingdom. Be that as it may. I mean, whatever. The point is that he didn't like the way we tried to reduce things to an all-too-human Oh, well, I'm mode. 100% and I think we're on the same page. 100% agreement with yeah, that. That's yeah. all he liked. And it's, it, there's a way, there's a certain way in which certain people um, interact with animals, or humans for that matter, which is um, humanizing to the point of, it's all too humanizing. And it reduces people to little babies, little infants that need to, you know, that Oedipalizing moment. I can understand where he's coming from. Yeah. Um, and I like to discover, I think it's fine to have a dog let to in, induce a becoming human in a dog so long as you allow yourself a little bit of a Be- becoming dog. For real. Yeah. Absolutely. That's so. a very good way of putting it. I was just thinking about this today, actually, when we were driving... Well, not today, yesterday, when we were driving into Ottawa. These odd little moments where my dog will just stop kind of in the middle of the room and look at me. And just yeah. these little gimlet eyes. And just looking, just looking at me. And there's this... Actually, there's a virtual in that. This moment of... What is, what is that look? That glance. Oh, yeah. In German, you know, blick. <laughs> Der blick. It's yeah. like this... Yeah glance that's I don't know what gaze you, I don't know what you are yeah I don't and know yet what, I don't you know and it's weird it throws it back and you're like I don't know what I am right and it doesn't know what you are yeah and it's the singularities encountering each other and and um I love that I love territoriality the way that animals will Circle mm, each other when they meet, or the complicated manners when two dogs pass. One, two, like I'm walking yeah. my dog, and someone's coming in the other way, and they're walking their dog. The complicated manners of two or two kinds of organisms simultaneously. Right. My manners with this person, these dogs manning their manners with each other, but also crosswise yeah. territorialities. Like these are really interesting. These are these are world creating. These are magical processes by which singularities feel each other out and establish languages and codes to exi- to coexist or to fight or whatever. 
I remember I had one bear encounter in my life. I was hiking alone first time, and I I ran into a bear at Algon- in Algonquin Park. I was it was in the fall. I was I, the guy at the the park ranger told me you're the only person in the park. That's awesome. I'm like, oh, that's okay. <laughs> it's my first time going out hiking on my own, and I was the only person in this huge the park that's pretty much the size of like probably the size of. Uh, there's some American states that yeah, are probably yeah. smaller than that park. Yeah. So I'm walking through it, and all of a sudden, sure enough, I see this black spot running down the, the trail in my direction, using the trail. Because the minute people disappear after Labor Day, the animals are using the trails. Of course. Um, it's and, like a super highway. Yeah, exactly. So I see, and I'm like, what the fuck is that? It just looked like a shadow. I always it's imagine. A bear! I always imagine bears Holy making shit. noise, right? I'm so scared. And all of a sudden, it stops about 20 feet away from me. It's a fucking, it's a black bear and it gets up and it was on its legs. legs. Yeah. And I'm looking at this thing and I remember the gaze. I remember this look and all of a sudden we're both in the situation. Thankfully this, the black bear was as terrified as I was. So we just looked at each other and then he kind of stomped the ground a bit and looked and he was sniffing and all of a sudden we both just turned just, and, and, and went the, the sort of almost by ways. like mutual agreement. Yeah. It was this mutual agreement. We're not going to deal with each other. That was one of the obviously one of the, the realest moments of my life, but it's it's that gaze that when you make eye contact with something from another species, or for that matter, when you make eye contact with a book, or you make eye contact with a tree, there's something about seeing something for what it is, an agency on its own that has as much existence as you have. Yes, it's really yes. disconcerting. It is totally, and yeah. also in a moment of desire, like if you see. Somebody that you desire, like right. walking on the street, right? Um, which in Montreal happens about a thousand times a day because for some mysterious reason, everybody in Montreal is absurdly beautiful. Even the cops are beautiful. <laughs> I don't understand how this is possible. Um, it's a strange place. It is a strange place. You want to talk about a genius Loki? That's, oh yeah, you know, Montreal, Montreal is yeah. just it's, it's all over. It's up there with San Francisco, and or maybe what maybe San Francisco was lost at a sure. Last time I went there, I was a little weirded out but uh new orleans for sure yeah for real yeah, yeah it is like yeah. new orleans in that respect yeah. and very different than others but like um you know there's the uh, the term the gaze there's uh, a fundamental item of feminist criticism and it's become it's sort of gone mainstream it's like one of those things in you know the academy that has become part of the lexicon of everyday life and people talk about the male gaze and the, the male gaze is like how, I mean, I, I, I can't speak for how women feel when they find that gaze upon them because, you know, that's not my experience, right? But like to find the gaze of desire upon you. Right. There must be something of that deep strangeness. Oh, yeah. That you just described with like the bear. Right. Or even in a domesticated, very unthreatening context like my dog. Right. The the fullness of being yeah. in that moment. And it's a lot to handle. It's yeah. a lot to take in. And if it's unwelcome, it's the worst. Right. Yes. Yeah. Which is where the feminists are coming from. Right. But um, then at the same time, there's also a... The, but that's one variant of it. But there are other variants of it, like the gaze of desire, which is just like the very opposite of unwanted. It's just like it's all you want. Right. You know, the my wife and I still talk about this one moment 
where we became aware of one another. Like we were in a class, Brahms Chamber Music. It was my first term in graduate school for musicology. It was Michael Cherlin. Anyway, it was his class. Um, and he had this great idea that we were, we were looking at a handful of chamber pieces by Johannes Brahms. And he had this great idea to have some of the people in the room who were performers like play these pieces. And so Helen was playing cello. She played cello in some of these performances. So I could see her, but she's playing, so she's not looking at me. And then like I did a presentation in front of the class on a movement from one of the Brahms sextets. And in a situation like that, you're addressing the class as a whole, not any one person. So, of course, I know she's there, she's in there, but I'm not addressing her in particular. But she can see me, I'm not seeing her. So there's, so it's not a glance, it's not a blick, it's not, right. a, it's not a gaze. That only happened in finals, we, like we had never talked, we didn't know each other, kind of knew who they other was, and were kind of curious about each other this is the semester before we actually started talking and dating but there's one moment just before winter break where I was in the library and she was working on something and she looked up and and we had that that gaze in that moment which was sort of like you know exactly what we're talking about except the opposite of that unwelcome like oh shit it's like too much and I didn't ask for this no because it was it was Mutual, and it was like this moment where, like, finally these two ships passing, yeah, yeah, like you know, where we got on the same page, where we were on the same wavelength. And it's funny that that glance is more memorable than almost anything else that happened to me that entire year, right? Well, one glance, and also significant considering, yeah, married and have children now. but we, yeah. but I, but that moment is still so vivid in my mind. Yeah. Just a, just a glance. I had a, still, a look. similar moment with Leslie, where I met her in her living room. I was friends with her. I had cast her roommate in a short film I was doing. Oh. And I went over, and she got up from the couch and we shook hands. We looked at each other, and in a sense, I've said it to her before that I kind of fell in love with her at that moment. I think it's true, but I think I didn't know it. But I, looking back, and that was the virtual. It's looking yeah. back, you can see what was virtually present, but you mm-hmm. couldn't see it there. You can't yeah. be conscious of it, but you sense it. You sense its presence. Yeah, they say that they, the, there's that old cliche, the eyes are... The eyes wind- walking across the Eyes room. are the windows of the soul. Right? Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would, I was, let's, let's rehabilitate that, but let's say that they're not windows into something. They're windows out of something. That the, mm-hmm. the eyes of the other are windows out into the real... They're windows out yeah, into the world of other that. agencies, out of this conceptual yeah, little I dig um, that. submarine you're in and into the great underwater depths of reality. <laughs> yeah. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.